Hello, and welcome to Citizen of the Bitch, the podcast that knows queer liberation has no borders. Today we have Zoe, Bianca, Julia, Kellen, and Laura. Today we're going to be talking about working class queer movements around the world. Um, the Queer International is a phrase coined by Sarah Schulman, who I was referencing on our recent Palestinian Liberation episode. So before we start talking about different movements, I'm going to read her a description of what it means. I am now a citizen of what I was thinking of as the Queer International, a play on history, words, and movements past and present. Queer Nation was an LGBT activist organization created in the early 1990s by people in ACT UP who wanted a venue to act on queer issues that were not AIDS-related. The word nation was used tongue-in-cheek since queer nationalistic patriotism was unimaginable to people in the epicenter of the AIDS crisis. It implied instead a kind of spiritual place, a queer place, with no land or borders that hovered above straight people's geography. Then there is the word international, well known to communists of all stripes as an identity to strive for, in which nationalist boundaries would be defeated by larger similarities amongst workers, where the bonds should lie. The international was the theme song of world communism, whose lyrics began, Arise ye prisoners of starvation, arise ye wretched of the earth. The Bolsheviks led the Third International, the global coalition of world communist organizations, but Leon Trotsky's concept of permanent revolution led to the idealism of the Fourth International, in response to Stalin's corruption of revolutionary principle. In his book, Desiring Arabs, Joseph Massad, a professor at Columbia University, shout out Kellen! And Julia. And Julia. Yeah, Kellen's there currently, but (laughs) (laughs) You've, you've both been... Unfortunately, uh, yes. <laughs> We've both been exposed to. <laughs> uh, yeah, Joseph Massad, a professor at Columbia University and a Palestinian, describes the Gay International as a Western apparatus imposing concepts of homosexuality on Palestinian sex between men. All of these factors converged on my use of the Queer International, a worldwide movement that brings queer liberation and feminism to the principles of international autonomy, from occupation, colonialism, and globalized capital, the newest, broadest movement for freedom for all us on Earth. So, yeah, so so that that's what it means, and we're gonna we're gonna get into it. A little bit of context, I guess, just to start off talking a little bit about context in the U.S. in the '60s and '70s. Um, a lot of gay liberation movements grew out of other struggles and were really entwined with feminist and anti-racist movements. Um, Queer movements challenged capitalism, racism, and state power because queer lives were antithetical to mainstream society. However, over time, and I'm sure, like, (laughs) we've all seen this happening with with Pride and, you know, talking about, like, how Pride was started as a riot and now there's, like, cops with fucking rainbow cop cars. (laughs) So, over time... Um, as LGBT folks gained social acceptance, like to some extent, and gay activism became institutionalized in in that sense of like city sponsored pride and like you know stuff like that, and like the fight for for marriage equality. So the focus narrowed to assessing the focus narrowed to like being able to access rights based on like state rights. So operating from an assimilation model. Many LGBT groups have worked to gain inclusion into state institutions, such as marriage and the military, by making gay identity a distinct category aligned with the state. So, yeah, this is just kind of another way that the state attempts to weave out or at least siphon off anti-capitalist movements. 
And today we're going to talk about queer movements around the world that do not buy into that bullshit. Oh, yes. So since this episode was born out of us running out of time on our recent Palestinian liberation episode, um, which we had so many notes for that we did not get to, but I figured we could start off by talking about some queer Palestinian activism. So Jasper Puar connects LGBT assimilation to racism through her coinage of the term homonationalism, which refers to how mostly white LGBT folks in the global north um, have gained some legal rights and then sort of end up adopting, like, patriotism and racism within their countries. I'm having, like, images of, in my head, of, like, very Kendall-looking, like, gay white men wearing, like, American flag. Yes, exactly. And dancing to Cotton Eye Joe at, like, a whiskey bar. Anyway. Yeah, no, that, yes, that is exactly who we're talking about here. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so, Puar. I forgot that group exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Puar contrasts. Yeah, so in Western countries where, where this has happened, they showcase LGBT rights as symbols of, like, see, look how modern and progressive we are. Or it was kind of similar in the U.S. when Obama was president. It's like, there's no racism if we have a black president. So it's like, if if these marginalized identities are in any way like, present in the state, people use it to be like, no, everything's fine. So the Israeli government has has harnessed onto this as well um, by promoting its, like, relatively decent positions on LGBT rights to justify the occupation of Palestine. Following the Israeli government's lead, um, preoccupation groups position Israel as this sort of, like, enlightened, gay-friendly country and they're like see a lot of arab countries like aren't like that and so they use that as as leverage i've literally seen people on twitter say things like oh you're like against occupation you realize that israel is the only place in the middle east where you wouldn't be beheaded for being gay and it's like the levels of ignorance that are just layered one on top of the other there are unreal but it's a great example of Mm -hmm. the like homo nationalism that you're talking about zoe yeah exactly so um yeah just going to talk about a couple of queer palestinian activist groups that um this information was from the Audre Lorde Project, and so they began to emerge around, like, the early 2000s. So there's a lot of, of groups, of course, doing work, but I'm just going to talk about two of the kind of, like, larger ones. So the first, and these are, like, um, I essentially just copied their, like, mission statements to read. Because I was going to paraphrase it, and then I was like, I, I don't know why I would do that. I'm just going to read what they already wrote about. <laughs> so just full disclosure, I did not write these descriptions. <laughs> so the first one is called, it's A-S-W-A-T. Um, I think it's Aswat, but, you know, could be wrong. Um, so the description, challenging and changing the discourse on issues relating to Palestinian LGBTQI women living and women living in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Aswat Palestinian gay women is the courageous voice of a unique minority group who face multiple forms of oppression on a daily basis. Firstly, as Palestinians living inside Israel, facing both institutionalized discrimination and racism. Aswat is part of the national struggle for equal human and civil rights. 
Secondly, as women facing oppression in the Israeli and Palestinian societies, despite their outward differences, both societies are characterized by a deep-rooted patriarchal attitude towards women. And thus, Aswat is part of the global feminist struggle for equality with men. Finally, as LGBTQI folks in wider heteronormative culture, that is often extremely homophobic. Aswat struggles against discrimination and fights to promote the inclusion of queer folks in Palestinian societies. Aswat was born to provide a safe and supportive space for queer Palestinian women. And then the second one is spelled A-L-Q-A-W-S, which I think is all cause. So yeah, as I said, these were like translated things. So some of the grammar is not the best. <laughs> Thank you to Google, who does not sponsor us. <laughs> Still. <laughs> All Cause for Sexual and Gender Diversity in Palestinian Societies is a group of LGBTQ Palestinian activists and allies who work collaboratively to break down gendered and heteronormative affairs. All Cause seeks to create an open space for all its members so that they may be engaged and energized in the struggle for equality and inclusion. All Cause was formed in November 2007 by a group of queer Palestinian activists who, having worked with the Jerusalem Open House for Pride and Tolerance since 2001, recognize the necessity for an organization that that focuses primarily on Palestinian LGBTQ issues as they relate to political and social struggles of Palestinians in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for that, Zoe. Yeah. Anytime. (laughs) Um, I guess this is an abrupt transition, but I guess we're just doing different queer movements around the world that we wanted to talk about. So something that I wanted to talk about today was uh, queer activism in Taiwan for I often joke, maybe not joke, because I actually want to manifest this, that I want to, like, permanently leave the U.S. someday and, like, relocate to Taiwan and spend the rest of my life there. Nice. Just from, like, everything that I've seen about the culture and, like, recently how they've handled the pandemic, just how well-run everything is there. Um, But the main thing is that I need to brush up on my Mandarin, and that literally might be uh, the biggest hindrance. So, uh, yeah, so, um, plenty of time to do a lingo in quarantine. I know. Or I could just like call my grandparents more. (laughs) Um, not to go into my cultural guilt too much, but, um, um, so I guess, uh, it's important to kind of discuss the history between China and Taiwan. It's a huge history, so I'm just going to do a synopsis. Because I think it has ties to certain colonialist themes that we were talking about earlier at the top of the episode, as well as their implications on different social movements. Um, so the bottom line is that the conflict between China and Taiwan uh, is uh, focused on whether Taiwan should be a self-governing nation state um, and seen as a seen as such as a matter of international law. Um, And so from the perspective of the People's Republic of China, um, they've never recognized Taiwan as a legitimate government, and in fact, uh, still believe that Taiwan is um, annexed to China, whereas uh, in Taiwan, um, believe that they uh, embody all of the characteristics of a state and um, seek independence on that basis. 
So consequently, social movements in Taiwan have been pretty discreet from those in mainland China and also uh, pretty separate from those in other East Asian countries as well, which is really awesome. Um, And just to preface everything that I am going to be talking about, a lot of what I'm going to discuss is about quote-unquote same-sex marriage in Taiwan. And I recognize that that term isn't inclusive of queer partnerships that don't identify as same sex. But the reason why I'm going to be using this term is because it's the term used by the Taiwanese legislature. And I think that's indicative of both the progress that's been made in Taiwan, because there's been so much discussion on this topic, and also how much further there still is to go. Uh, That being said, there's also been some really important trans liberation activism happening in Taiwan that I'll be talking about later on. And so Taiwan has been widely seen as one of the most, I guess, progressive countries in Asia when it comes to LGBTQ rights. A brief history on this. The first piece of legislation that was introduced on this topic was in 2003, when the which is the executive yuan, basically the executive branch of the Taiwanese government, introduced a bill that would legalize same-sex marriage and allow same-sex couples to adopt children. But this was 2003, and that bill got struck down by other branches of government. But that same year, uh, the first large-scale pride parade happened in Taiwan. Large-scale, as in there were over a thousand attendees. Though at the time, many of them were wearing masks, like full-face masks, to conceal their identities because of the fear of being identified, since at the time, queerness was still seen as a social taboo. And still is to some extent, but more so uh, in 2003. But of course, there were still a lot of openly queer people in Taiwan, and I wanted to talk about a few demonstrations and instances of queer activism that are important to mention. So first, in 2011, there was this, I guess, direct action, protest, demonstration, where 80 lesbian couples hosted this uh, wedding party in Taipei, like out in public. Nice. Just, like, re- it was so cute. It was really, it's really cute. Like, I love that. Um, they all like had dresses on or wore whatever they would typically wear if they were to be having an official, quote unquote, official wedding. There were bouquets. There were cer- ceremonies that were held that like looked every part like a uh, like a law, like a wedding by law, I guess. Um, But of course, at the time, their marriage wasn't going to have any binding legal effect. But they were basically like, fuck it, we're going to do this anyways, just like for us. And so it was this really great, yeah, mixture of celebration and solidarity. But it was also, uh, there was also like sadness and uh, just lots of emotions at that event as well. And an article that I was reading about it, they interviewed this woman, Coral Huang, who said, quote, the wedding party is fun, but it's not real. Uh, getting a genuine marriage certificate is very meaningful as it shows that we are being recognized and accepted, end quote. Um, And she had actually, with her partner, planned to be legally wedded in Europe because um, that was the only way that they could have gotten any sort of legal recognition for their marriage. But I guess one plus side for that demonstration beyond the celebration aspect of it was that there was no police interference or anything. And by all accounts, it was uh, there was just like no police violence, which is really good. Um, another important figure in Taiwanese queer activism 
is a man by the name of Qi Jiawei, who was the first person to come out as gay in Taiwan on national television. That was in 1986. Wow. And um, he is a lifelong activist and uh, back in the day he operated the halfway house for HIV and AIDS patients and worked to disseminate information to Taiwanese citizens um, about safe sex in general. Uh, but of course, as are so many people, T wasn't a person without controversy. Um, one of the things that kind of drew the most controversy on his part was that he had struck a deal with this local credit card company to hire people living with AIDS to be debt collectors. Um, and that was kind of seen as like exploitative of a, vulnerable, of a vulnerable community to work this sort of predatory job. I think my take on it though might be like, okay, maybe again, capitalistic systems are to blame if it's like many of these folks were lower income and maybe wouldn't get hired anyway in any other place because of their HIV status or because they were openly queer um, and so, like, I don't know how, I don't know what to make of it. I think there are a lot of competing interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so separately, he had been imprisoned for, like, a robbery, quote-unquote robbery, that he had denied doing, um, and claimed that it was because of his queerness that he had been arrested, which, of course, has happened many times in history, so, um, that wouldn't have been surprising. And later on, in a protest against Taiwan's marriage laws, which still had not yet permitted queer marriages, Xi had tried to obtain a marriage license for him and his partner uh, multiple times, and of course was denied every time. And it culminated in him presenting his case in court um, about like the constitutionality of his being denied a marriage license. And then he went on to advocate in court on behalf of many other queer couples who sought the same recognition. Um, but because of the case he brought on behalf of himself, uh, the Constitutional Court, which is essentially the highest court in Taiwan, ruled in 2017 that certain clauses in the Taiwan Civil Code pertaining to marriage were unconstitutional, since the Constitution had provided in a different article that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation was illegal. So in the following years, because of increased queer visibility and activism, government officials began to slowly publicly declare their support for same-sex marriage. And uh, there actually was a referendum in 2018 that asked the question, quote, should same-sex marriage be banned, end quote. And that question actually unfortunately passed, meaning that most people said, yes, it should be banned. Um, which shows like this divide between, I guess, like public opinion and activism, which we see in so many other countries um, throughout history. But because of that court ruling that I had just discussed, where they said uh, marriage on the basis of sexual orientation was unconstitutional, the Taiwanese government had to create, had to amend the civil code anyways. So there was a bill drafted in 2019 in February, and then it was passed in May of that year. And same-sex marriage has been legal in Taiwan ever since, which I think wouldn't have happened without the activism that I just discussed. So then moving on to, I guess, a a separate but also related topic in Taiwan, which is trans rights. In 2013, the first transgender marriage was accepted by the Taiwanese government. And since 2017, the Taiwanese government has been mulling, uh, including this, quote, 
third slash indeterminate gender end quote <laughs> option on official documents um, to in an attempt to be more inclusive of people who don't identify with a gender that conforms to the gender binary. But of course, this has received backlash because, like, it's not as if there are three genders. <laughs> yeah. Third gender is, like... They think, I think the official word was literally indeterminate, which, like, what? Like, Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, of course, it does, it's, not, it's an umbrella catch-all term for, like, everybody who doesn't identify as either a man or a woman, which... Of course, there's lots of nuances in there as well. But transness is still highly stigmatized in Taiwan. In a recent survey published by the Taipei Times, 55% of trans people in Taiwan said they were afraid of using a public restroom, and 19% said that they had been attacked or harassed in public. Um, so... Uh, in response to this, um, on the International Trans Day of Visibility this past year, um, the trans activist group, the Taiwan Alliance to Promote Civil Partnership Rights, unveiled the results of a survey they had, condu they had conducted among over 500 trans people in Taiwan. And they listed seven demands to make of the Taiwanese government based on those results. So um, just a couple of those demands that I wanted to highlight was one, they wanted to highlight or they wanted to end this uh, third slash indeterminate gender designation on papers and replace it with something that allows for specification of different gender identities. Mm -hmm. um, and then in response to their survey where they found that 48% of people said they had been bullied in school for their identity, they had demanded comprehensive gender identity education beginning in elementary school, which be really cool and um a, a lot of their demands uh asked for broader rights for trans marriages because at this point no explicit law there's no law explicitly that uh makes it legal in taiwan um and then just like one person who i wanted to highlight in taiwan is a woman by the name of audrey tongue who is the first transgender person to serve in the cabinet in Taiwan. Um, before starting this job, she was a software engineer and um, she had used her knowledge as a software engineer to kind of uh, uh, pioneer Taiwan's COVID response, which has been widely praised, which is really cool. And that visibility is extremely important, but I also want to recognize that trans and queer people deserve liberation because it's a human right at the core and not because of their accomplishments or their impressiveness. So I also wanted to point that out as well. Hell yeah. Um, Hell yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's a lot of information about <laughs> what's happening in Taiwan. Um, it was a really, so it was a really, really good journey for me to research this because there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Um, yeah, of course, there's right. still a long way to go, but uh, we want to. I wanted to acknowledge the work that's been done and is continuing to be done there. Hell yeah! Nice. Well, thank you so much. That was like super informative. Um, I wanted yeah. to talk specifically about the movement for Black trans lives, um, particularly in the United States. 
First of all, I want to shout out um, our listener, Anna Marie, who who is in our reading group and helped pull together a lot of the resources that I will be kind of pulling from for this section. Um, if you aren't on the reading group train, like, I don't know what your deal is, but you should join us. It's really, <laughs> truly the most wholesome thing. Which you can um, do by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank so you so much. Go. I love it. Ready with the plug. Anyway, um, obviously, as we know, understanding the ways that various oppressions and marginalizations overlap is like what we are calling intersectionality. And there's a really important piece of the Black Lives Matter movement and moment right now, which is the movement for black trans lives. I really so there's this blogger um, who on Blogspot is or on Tumblr is uh, trans griot, but her name is Monica Roberts. She is a GLAAD award-winning blogger, writer, and award-winning trans human rights advocate. And she wrote this whole piece about uh, trans Juneteenth. Uh, She writes, quote, As we celebrate the first Juneteenth to take place in the 2020s, we did so under challenging circumstances, as usual. We have a COVID-19 pandemic. The Republicans have politicized and deliberately run rampant because it is disproportionately killing black people. And because we are black people, that is negatively affecting black trans people as well. So is the plague of police violence. Tony McDade is one of our fallen trans masculine peeps who has barely been mentioned any time there were media discussions about the unacceptable levels of unarmed black people being violently killed by the police. We are also still dealing with issues we had before COVID in terms of having to deal with anti-trans hatred inside and outside the black community. That transphobic hate speech is being converted into hate violence that manifests itself in cis black people assaulting or killing us. Um, I wanted to highlight it specifically because I think it's important for us to understand the specific dynamic of these over overlapping oppressions and what it means for people specifically within uh, that community. I wanted to give another example of a murder at the hands of the state of a trans woman of color. So um, Laylene Kubilet Polanco was a 27-year-old transgender Afro-Latina who died from an epileptic seizure while held in solitary confinement in, at New York City's Rikers Island in June 2019. When Laylene's death began making waves in the media in early June, she was the 10th black trans woman reported dead in state custody or killed in 2019. Just three days later, the American Medical Association, which is the leading national physician organization in the country, declared that there was a, quote, epidemic of violence plaguing trans women of color. They released a statement saying, according to available tracking, fatal anti-transgender violence in the United States is on the rise, and most victims were black transgender women. The number of victims could be even higher due to underreporting and better data collection by law enforcement is needed to create strategies that will prevent anti-transgender violence. Like, obviously, the statement that they released is like the law enforcement needs to create better strategies. No, like there's obviously other ways to to do this. That's not like continuing to have cops uh, interfacing with black trans women. I was about to say I was surprised that 
that was like an official statement from the AMA. And then I was like, oh, but they're saying like, and we need cops to help us fix it. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yes. Police departments more money to track their own murders. <laughs> yeah, totally. What could go wrong? <laughs> um, and I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court win that recently happened that was kind of like based off of this one case, but um essentially the background leading up to it um was this um trans woman named Amy Stevens. She was a funeral home director in suburban Detroit and she came out at her job and her boss fired her, thinking that her being trans would quote be a distraction um to their already grieving clients. Stephens claimed that her employer violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a piece of legislature that is out of uh, the civil rights movement. So again, those two kind of overlapping things working hand in hand here. Um, And that one in her district court. So essentially, when the Supreme Court made the decision, they decided like, yeah, okay, employers can't discriminate based on um, marginalized gender identities or... um, sexuality but there's a lot of complications around it because essentially it's very very hard to prove that an employer wrongfully terminated you and unless a employer is just extremely obvious which happens um friend of the pod emrys um who we had on for the like queer fiction piece like posted a letter that they had received from their former employer essentially saying just that that they would not receive a tenure track position because of their trans identity and um so for for people who have experienced things like that this case would protect them the problem is employers can uh be very manipulative they can can hide reasons why they're actually firing you and blame it on other things that under the eyes of the law are seen as more just so we just need to be cautious especially in right to work states which is Mm. the majority of the country um the employers essentially have uh, the right to fire without giving a reason. Um, And so if employers are not just stupid and if you are quiet and you don't say why you're firing, if you're firing Mm -hmm. a trans person for being trans, um, then there's still nothing that the law does to protect you Mm -hmm. in in a right-to-work state. So it's another reason to speak to what you were talking about, Laura, with the way that all of these issues overlap, that like labor rights are so Mm -hmm, important. mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then I kind of wanted to finish up this specific topic by um, kind of talking about all the different ways that trans and gender nonconforming folks are cut down in our society over and over again. I think that understanding the specific marginalization will help us to understand why we need to center trans voices of color in the capital M movement. But I'm going to essentially read right from prisonlegalnews.org because I felt like they said it better than I ever could. So similar to what Zoe was saying before. Um, So the one place that I wanted to talk about is barriers to education. 
So many trans and gender nonconforming people drop out of school due to harassment and discrimination suffered at all levels of education. Schools are also highly gendered spaces. Students are forced to use gendered bathrooms and locker rooms where they are frequently subjected to violence and persecution. This harassment and discrimination is frequently unchecked by school administration and educators. Mandatory trainings are not in place to educate faculty, staff, and students about LGBT issues. Additionally, issues often arise for trans and gender nonconforming individuals who do not have matching identity documents, which can limit access to higher education. For trans people with criminal convictions that limit name changes, this issue is further exacerbated. Um, So then I also wanted to talk about barriers to housing. Trans and gender nonconforming people, especially young people, are disproportionately represented in homeless and street-based communities. Many people kicked out, are kicked out of their homes for being transgender or gender nonconforming. All too often, young trans people are forced to run away from foster care due to sex-segregated group homes and or unsafely f- family placements, where they are subjected to abuse, harassment, and discrimination. There are very few temporary shelters that are safe for trans people due to the lack of staff training about trans issues, sex segregation in facilities, and discrimination and abuse at the hands of shelter employees and other residents. Furthermore, low-income housing options for young people and folks coming out of prisons and jails are generally not trans-friendly and are often, again, sex-segregated. Barriers to employment. Acquiring and maintaining employment is it's challenging for many trans and gender nonconforming people due to discrimination based on gender presentation. Oftentimes, trans people are fired when employers discover that identity documents do not match. Unfortunately, this often leads to trans people being outed by employers and fellow coworkers, which leads to increased rates of violence, harassment, and discrimination in the workplace. Holding employers accountable for employment discrimination is extremely difficult due to an inaccessible legal system and finding a zealous attorney that understands trans issues and has the capacity to represent individuals on these types of cases, and for all the reasons that we already said. So this one's a big one. Barriers to medical care. For those who have health care, for those who have health care, which again, like not a lot of us do. Most transgender-related medical care is specifically not covered by health insurance companies. It's difficult to find doctors that understand trans-related health care needs and who do not further discriminate against trans people in vulnerable medical settings. The vast majority of medical providers do not provide gender-affirming medical care and utilize transphobic standards of care that counteract informed consent models used for non-trans-specific medical care. Gender-affirming health care includes, but is not limited to, providing access to hormone therapy without extensive requirements and psychological evaluations, providing information about trans-specific health care, and rejecting the notion that all people transition in the same way and have the same needs. As a result of the pervasive discrimination within the medical systems and institutions, trans people face persistent medical problems, including the lack of affirming OBGYN care, widespread use of street-acquired hormone therapy, and disproportionate rates of depression and suicide. 
Additionally, basic medical needs often go untreated due to the lack of access to resources and the fear of facing harassment and discrimination in medical settings, including emergency rooms, hospitals, and doctor's offices. Yeah, I just want to add, um, and I, because we're talking about the, the global, um, I think I mentioned this on our, on our chronic illness episode, but even in places where there is like Medicare for all structures, um, specifically thinking of of Denmark, which I know the most about because I lived there, but um, even under their like Medicare for all or single payer systems in those places, they they still often don't cover trans healthcare, which is why it's super important to make sure that we are like using intersectional lenses for like what Callum was saying with labor laws and also with Medicare for all and with like mm-hmm. all of the things that that you know we're working towards as leftists like this is why it's so important to make sure that we're looking at it intersectionally because like just having medicare for all doesn't actually always mean for all mm-hmm. totally yeah i also just wanted to briefly talk about specifically um the issues around intersex surgery um which is a separate but related issue um just thinking about um, the issues around informed consent that trans and gender nonconforming people often experience in healthcare. Um, there are a lot of similar issues for intersex folks, and a lot of them have experienced basically an unwanted surgery that they were unable to consent to when they were a baby, like right when mm-hmm. they were born. Um, so there's a really um, great activist named Pigeon Pagonis. Um, they're mm-hmm. at Pigeon on Twitter. Um, who has done a lot to inform my thinking around um, the movement to end intersex surgery, um, specifically around informed consent for intersex folks. So I just wanted to shout that out. Yeah, absolutely. Just to build off that for people who may not be aware, um, when um, babies are born with like sex characteristics that do not fall into what doctors consider to be the standard for a binary like sex presentation um, frequently they'll go ahead like on newborn infants and and do surgery to uh, have basically the outside appearance conform with um, one or the other of what they imagine boys or girls are supposed to look like. Um, And as you might imagine, people are not necessarily like happy about the fact that that happened to them as infants, sometimes as children. Um, There's also like hormones that people are put on it sometimes, um, again, without consent, especially because frequently this is happening to babies and children. So just wanted to, for people who may not be aware, add some context to that as well. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for expanding on that, Helen. It's it's terrible. <sighs> on to more terrible things. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so there's also obviously barriers to pol- political participation um, due to disproportionate disproportionate criminalization many trans people suffer collateral consequences as a result of criminal convictions and incarceration in illinois individuals who are incarcerated are barred from voting and as a result are not able to influence the political process and change transphobic laws again whomst among us is still believing in democracy but still this is fucked up um and then i just want to talk briefly about poverty and criminalization and then we're going to be moving on so as a result of all the barriers listed above, many trans and gender nonconforming people live in poverty. Low-income communities face higher rates of policing and arrests. Many trans women 
particularly trans women of color, are profiled and arrested for prostitution even when not engaging in sex work. Many practitioners refer to this as walking while trans, much like the racial profiling in traffic stops referred to as driving while black. Trans and gender nonconforming people who are restricted from housing, education, jobs, and medical care may be forced to rely on survival crimes including trespass, loitering, retail theft, and street sex work. Once arrested, trans people are subjected to harsh discrimination, violence, and harassment at the hands of police officers, and correctional officers. Incarcerated trans people are placed in sex-segregated facilities, usually removed from hormones, stripped of gender-affirming clothing, and oftentimes are placed in harsher conditions than non-transgender detainees, including solitary confinement and medical wards. The cyclical nature of the effects of institutional oppression, poverty, and criminalization is an overall barrier to the liberation of trans people. I just want to add that um, friend of the pod, Julia Salazar, is currently working on um, legislation to repeal New York's, um, you know, walking while trans laws. Um, so shout out to Julia Salazar, the only pure politician on the planet. <laughs> so true. Hell yes. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly just about sort of the historical and ideological connections between imperialism and homophobia and sexism um, and transphobia. Um, so thinking about um, what you were talking about, Zoe, with Sarah Shulman's quote, that this sort of concept of a queer nation would have to be inherently borderless. Um, I think that that really shows up in the ways that these forms of oppression have historically happened as well. Um, so one thing that I want to highlight is that the British government specifically had really strict homophobic laws, um, like anti-sodomy laws are a big one, so basically laws against gay sex. Um, and similar types of colonial nations like France often didn't have these things codified in quite the same way, or they repealed them earlier. So Britain tended to import these laws and impose them as a part of colonialism. So how this shows up today is basically current or former British colonies have really disproportionate rates of still criminalizing queerness. Um, they make up more than half of all countries that still criminalize queerness in some legal way. Um, and many of the countries that are now considered to have the most homophobic laws and be sort of the most dangerous in many ways to queer people, um, two examples being Uganda and Jamaica, historically had some same-sex relationships and some acceptance of trans or gender queer identity before colonial rule, but that was basically forced out by British rule and these ideals of Christianity and patriarchal society. Um, for those interested in learning more about this, specifically the legal aspects, there's a really great study by a non-binary Jamaican scholar who's named Chantov McNamara. Um, it's called Silent, Spoken, Written, and Enforced, and that basically looks at some of the legal links between colonialism and homophobia. Um, and this connection is something that we see again and again. Um, it also shows up with the European genocide and colonization across the Americas, um, indigenous societies typically had very different attitudes towards sex and gender than what we think of in Western society that were forcibly repressed by different colonial governments. Um, and just as patriarchy and enforced heterosexuality 
are a key part of how capitalism developed, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. It was also a key part of how a lot of Western countries colonized other societies. Um, so these forms of oppression are really closely interlinked and co-constituted. And I think in order to fight either of them, we really have to look at how they interact and kind of be fighting both of them together. Yes, definitely. Um, I wanted to talk about indigenous models for thinking about gender as well. Um, I like this episode because we're all just taking turns talking about things even more yeah. aggressively <laughs> than we normally take turns talking about things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we are talking about a queer international today. And like what I wanted to talk about is people's, people's whose lands are now you know, now have been taken as part of the United States empire, but I still think this counts. We're talking about separate nations. Um, and uh, Laura obviously covered the United States as this sort of settler empire really, really well. Um, I wanted to talk specifically about the concept of being two-spirit, which is a term used by many Native American and First Nations people who reject the gender binary. Um, for people who aren't aware, First Nations is sort of the term that's used um, to describe Native Canadian people, uh, people who are native to the lands now called Canada. Um, and I also want to note that, like, and this should be obvious, Native Americans are not a monolith. So phrases like Native culture or the Native American community are kind of meaningless because there are obviously so many different communities and cultures subsumed under the heading of Native Americans. So two-spirit is this English term which has been adopted by Native or First Nations peoples of many backgrounds. Um, and that being said, the way that being what we now call two-spirit, which is a term that was created in the 1990s um, by indigenous activists, the way that it showed up in different cultures in the past was very, you know, unsurprisingly different. But what we can say sort of writ large is that going back centuries, we know that many American societies had gender roles, but frequently those gender roles were not necessarily binary. And this is something that really shocked um, colonizers. There's like these incredible stories of Spanish colonizers, for example, being, for example, um, being scandalized by what they described in their writings as sodomite men who dressed and acted like women, which is their attempt, obviously, to impose a binary understanding of gender on people who were not part of a binary. Um, settlers coined a term to describe what they saw as these de gender deviant individuals, um, uh, and they largely used it to describe men. Um, or what they thought were men, really. Um, and the term, I'm not going to use it because it's uh, considered offensive for obvious reasons, but it literally comes from the Spanish word meaning to engage in sodomy. And you can really see how, like, sex-obsessed colonizers were. Um, and so many of the records that we have describing this um, talk about two-spirit people who in Western societies would be described as assigned male at birth, um, but that is not necessarily like the extent of what the what we might call two-spirit now looks like. Um, and I also wanted to acknowledge that there's some criticism of the two-spirit idea from Native American thinkers and academics today. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Marionette Pember, who is Ojibwe, although she is not alone. 
because it is or could be considered anachronistic and detached from actual native histories and that it's culturally nonspecific. It doesn't refer to discrete customs, but sort of this general understanding that native peoples understood sex outside of a binary and were kinder to people who we would now consider LGBTQ than Europeans were. Um, and Pember has written while, that while that is true in many cases, not all native communities had two-spirit traditions. And there's also a criticism that the very term two-spirit emphasizes the colonial binary, even as it claims to stand and create space outside it. But I think that like the final word really should come down to people who are two-spirit, who use that term to define themselves. And it can be really freeing and also can create and reaffirm connections to ancestral and pre-colonial practices. Um, and so that is kind of, at least for me, my opinion is irrelevant. That is where I land um, on the, the two-spirit question. This yeah. is where we stand, our early American historian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also wanted to talk about thinking about the U.S.'s imperialism and colonialism specifically. Mm -hmm. um, another example of this is, um, so my family is Cuban, and people often talk about Cuba as not being particularly safe for queer people. Um, it's often used as an anti-communist argument as well. Um, but one of the major reasons why queerness was historically viewed negatively in Cuba, especially in the 20th century, is specifically because of its association with U.S. imperialism. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to give a brief overview about that. So basically, because of the U.S. military presence in Cuba, there was a thriving underground economy of queer sex work in which U.S. military officers, who were exclusively male at the time, would hire gay Cuban sex workers. Um, and there was also just sex tourism, where Americans and other tourists would travel to Cuba specifically because they knew that they could hire queer and trans sex workers there. So queer people were often associated or seen as collaborators with U.S. imperialism. And this was partly like the reason why this happened is partly because there weren't a lot of other options for employment because of existing homophobia within Cuban culture. So this is not to say that like everything was just amazing for queer people in Cuba in the 20th century. But because of anti-communist sentiment um, and to reinforce the narrative that people need to escape communism, the U.S. basically allowed more immigration um, from communist countries, particularly Cuba. Um, and so there are a lot of LGBTQ immigrants from communist countries in the U.S., but that doesn't necessarily mean that those countries are more repressive just that the U.S. is more willing to believe those countries are repressive and therefore allow people to seek asylum on the basis of homophobic or transphobic discrimination. Um, and another thing I just wanted to mention is that there's kind of like this popular liberal worldview that tends to look at like communist countries or countries in the global south, um, basically any non-Western nations as having less progressive attitudes towards queer and trans rights. Um, and therefore being less enlightened than countries like the U.S. Um, I think we also see this a lot um, with anti-Muslim sentiment where people claim that Muslim people or Arab people are more homophobic. Um, it's definitely a racist argument as well. Um, but this really overlooks the ways in which these laws are the legacy of colonial rule. Um, and Western countries also make these problems worse by making it really, really hard for trans and queer folks to immigrate, even if they are escaping real persecution in their home country. 
Um, so my takeaway from this is basically just if we're really worried about the mistreatment of LGBTQ people in other countries and worldwide, that has to be tied to fighting for open borders and more generally for all people to have access to a home and a community that they feel safe living in. Hell yeah. Well said. Um, yeah, I just to sort of close us out, I know that we've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating slash I don't assume that everybody who listens has heard every single one of our episodes, but like, Rude. how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> right, like really, you should listen to every single one of our episodes. They all slap. Um, however, I wanted to talk briefly about why capitalism is so important or insistent on cis slash heteronormativity and why deviants can be seen as so dangerous under that system. Um, and one of the reasons is, is that capitalism is reliant on reproductive work, um, which is feminized work, and it's best for capital when that work is unpaid. So having a biologically defined group of people, women, who are consigned to do the vast majority of reproductive work and do it without wages means more money for the people at the top. That's like a very simplistic rendition, but I think it, it works. Um, part of reproductive work is the literal reproduction of the working class, i.e. actually birthing new workers. Um, and for that to proceed as planned, it works best for capital to have a class of people with uteruses who are consigned to doing that labor, literally and in the Marxian sense. And if people with uteruses decide they don't want to get pregnant for any number of reasons, um, even that can be considered gender deviance, which is worthy of some form of punishment, which might be soft and cultural like, you know, Hallmark movies making you feel bad for not being a mom, for example. Yeah, and then on the other extreme, it can, of course, be really intense and extreme as well. Um, like, for example, pregnant people who have miscarriages being sent to jail, um, particularly if they use drugs or if there's some sort of argument that they were responsible for it. Um, and then there's lots of other legal ways through taxes and, like, kids only being allowed to have two legal guardians or parents that the state enforces the types of relationships it values. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there's lots of ways that this rigid gender binary can be disrupted. So, like, that can happen as simply as women not getting married or not having kids, which traditionally... Like, for example, with women not being able to own property without a man or not having access to birth control, traditionally these things are made difficult to do, um, you know, but even more earth shaking is the idea of women deciding to be with other women or people with uteruses not being women at all. Queerness is in <laughs> yes, yes. Um, queerness is inherently destabilizing to not not just to the patriarchy and to cis normativity and heteronormativity, but it's destabilizing to capitalism. Um, it's saying that you're not going to be a productive citizen in the way that capital wants you to be. Um, and you know, of course, because capital is adaptive, it has tried to subsume queerness. Zoe talked about this at the, the top of the episode, like rainbow capitalism, multicolor Mastercards, Smirnoff selling love is love vodka bottles. Like, kill me. <laughs> that's the result. Um, you know, it does. It turns out gay people are consumers too. Um, but the good news is, capital has not been able to subsume radical queerness, and I think that like that's where its power remains. And like by radical queerness, I mean an LGBTQ plus movement that is transnational, multiracial, working class, and obviously has no place for turfs in it. Suck it, J.K. Rowling. 
<laughs> enemy of the pod. Enemy of the pod. <laughs> Definite enemy cunt. of the pod. <laughs> yes. Has has been called a cunt on air before. Um, well, thank you, wow. Kelly. That's <laughs> and and now yet again. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a great place to end. It's as Kelly said, this episode was just kind of us taking turns talking about things. I just really like the concept of queer international and like this, you know, borderless, like anti-colonial, anti-capital queer movement. It was like, yeah, let's just, it'll work out. Everyone's just going to throw in whatever. So this was my my Sagittarius vision was just document chaos. And I loved it. So we have no choice but to stand. (laughs) So thank you everyone for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed this. If better have. Yeah. There's obviously so many other places we we could have talked about, but alas, we only have an hour, so come back. Come back next week. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So yeah, if if you enjoyed this or if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, or if you just like us at all, um, you can go to (laughs) patreon.com slash season of the bitch and give us your money. Um, You can follow us at season of the bee on Twitter and Instagram. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Unless you're the person that said we use um and like too much, in which case you may not review, rate, or subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) You have been suspended. (laughs) And you can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. As as Laura mentioned, we have an ongoing anti-racist abolitionist reading group happening through our Patreon. And we have a Discord as well, which has been super fun. So, yeah, you can find us on all of the places, and we will talk to you next week. This is essentially your opportunity to befriend us. Yeah. True. And who wouldn't want to? Unless you are the person who said we use like and I'm too much, in which case, (laughs) you're not your friend. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Love you all. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Bitch.